This is Radio 316. How big do you think the church really is? Statistically, we know that there are over 2 billion professing believers across the globe. However, is that number accurate? Well, we have a lot of reasons to hope that it is, and yet there are a lot of reasons to doubt that it is as well. In today's study, we're going to make the case that the modern church is nowhere near as big as the statistics might suggest. In fact, it may just be a fraction thereof. Throughout redemptive history, there have been many intervals where the faithful men and women of God were a distinct minority within the greater visible body. The Bible even has a word for these folks. It calls them the remnant. Chapter 1. Introduction and Thesis If someone were to ask you whether every member of your local church is saved, what would you say? If someone were to ask you whether every member in every church, regardless of denomination or creed, has a saving faith in Jesus Christ, what would you say? While we may want this to be the case, and while our answers may vary from person to person, we would probably all agree that some percentage of the church-going public is either deceived or just going through the motions. If we're being objective, we would probably conclude that not everyone who claims to know Jesus actually does. For what it's worth, Jesus Christ concluded, said the same thing, but he said so in even stronger terms. In Matthew 7, he said this, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, Jesus was making a sad but a necessary distinction, a distinction between true and false believers, of which there has always been some in both camps. And in his own day, he knew that the latter way outnumbered the former. For example, when Jesus approached Jerusalem on the eve of his Passion Week, he stopped to look at the city, and instead of joy or a sense of homecoming, tears filled his eyes. Why? You see, although Jerusalem was home to more of Abraham's children than any city on the face of the globe, Christ knew that it was spiritually void. Jerusalem had a temple. It had its history. It had the scriptures. It had been home to generations of God's covenant people going back centuries. It had all the appearances of religiosity. Whatever that looks like, it had it. But now, on the day that Jesus wept over it, its religion had become largely cultural. The temple, the priesthood, the other elements were now just a facade covering a mountain of apostasy. Specifically, Luke 19 says this as he came near the city. As he drew near, Jesus saw the city and wept over it, saying... If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. You see, in Christ's day, just like in ours, there were a lot of religious people doing a lot of religious things. From 10,000 feet up, things looked very religious, very pious in Jerusalem. If you were at 10,000 feet, you saw the temple and the priests and the sacrifice and the feast days and all these things, and it looked very religious. 
In Jerusalem, just like across America and much of the globe today, there were people who professed and practiced some form of faith, some outward expression. And when Jesus entered the city just before Passover, he saw this everywhere he looked. Everywhere he looked, there were religious-looking people doing religious-looking things. There was a lot of exertion. There was fervor and their cries of Hosanna on what we call Palm Sunday. And yet, did these cries encourage Christ's heart on the day that he approached the city? Did any of the religious activities that he saw that day convince him that Jerusalem is a spiritually healthy place as he entered its gates? Well, no. When Christ drew near to the city, he saw Jerusalem for what it was, and it was a spiritual ghost town. It was a place with the widest of gates, so to speak, and with people living in the broadest of ways. To borrow an Old Testament phrase, Jerusalem had become Ichabod. The glory had departed. Its destruction had now come. But here's the thing, nobody knew it. Nobody knew just how spiritually unhealthy they were. Even Christ's own disciples were confused about the city's spiritual health. You remember Mark 13, they go out with Jesus, they look at the temple, they say, hey Jesus, how grand is this temple? And he tells them it's coming down. They were proud and impressed with their own contemporaries and their age and the like. And Jesus said, it's coming down. The facade will be gone. In just a few short years, the city would be trampled and the people would be judged. And when that happened, only a remnant would remain. And guess what? In 70 AD, that's exactly what happened. God used the Roman Empire as his rod of discipline upon his own people. He used a pagan nation to judge his covenant nation. And that should say something about how far gone they were. If you know your Bible, then you know there was precedent for this exact sort of action because God had done it before. In 586 BC, the people had slid into the same sort of apostasy. They looked very religious and yet they were apostate. In 586, God's people had retained a cultural faith, but had leavened it with paganism and pluralism to the point that their sacrifices rose like a foul stench before God. And so God judged them. Now, where had all the faithful believers of that age gone? Well, here's the thing. They were still there. There was just a lot fewer of them. In 586, they had Daniel, they had Jeremiah, they had others. In in 70 AD, there were men and women, Simeon, Anna, John the Baptist. The faithful few were still there. They were just a remnant or a fraction of the larger visible whole. They were there. They were just outnumbered. And the faithful, regenerate men and women were outnumbered by the deceived and the deluded to their left and to their right to such an extent in those ages, then isn't it reasonable to ask if the same might be true in our own age? With that question in mind, let's lay out the objectives for the rest of today's broadcast. In our next two segments, we're going to make a theological distinction that some folks have never heard of. We're going to talk about the difference between what's called the visible and the invisible church. If you don't know what those terms mean, just wait, we'll explain them momentarily. Then in the following segment, we're going to consider a few related passages from both the Old and the New Testament to see if they add weight and credibility to our thesis that the church is a lot smaller than it appears. Finally, we're going to look at some of the modern trends in the church as we consider what the church's near and midterm trajectory may be. Chapter 2, The Visible and Invisible Church A few years back, I walked into one of those model homes I'd been staged to make it ready for sale. Now, on the table, on the counter when we came in, was this bowl of delicious-looking fruit. Almost too delicious-looking. So I picked one up, and I discovered that it was actually wax. The object had the visible characteristics of an apple, 
but not the nature, not the composition of one. The visible appearance was just a mirage. What looked like life-giving fruit was actually artificial. Sometimes people can work the same way. Sometimes appearances with people can be deceiving. Sometimes a person or a whole group can have outward appearances or even affirmations that don't match up with their ontology, with their nature. Way back in the book of First Kings chapter 18, there was an occasion when virtually all of Israel, thousands upon thousands of people were gathered on top of Mount Carmel, including the king and queen of Judah. From 10,000 feet, these were Abraham's descendants gathered within the bounds of the promised land in order to worship in order to sacrifice, in order to pray. From 10,000 feet up, this might have looked like the most religious gathering of the age, of the time. But that wasn't the case. The truth is that the king and queen were named Ahab and Jezebel. The Israelites themselves had fallen in love with pagan gods, and the only man of God that day was a prophet named Elijah. Now, God on that day would demonstrate his power and his authority on Mount Carmel, much to Elijah's delight. However, days later, when he's being chased by Jezebel's assassins, Elijah would cry out to God. He would lament over the fact that he was the only one left, the only faithful, the only prophet. Specifically, he said this. He said, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Now, what was God's reply to him? Well, God said this, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You see, it may have seemed to Elijah like he was all alone, but God had several thousand just like him. In the book of Romans, the apostle Paul referred to these 7,000 as a remnant. And although they were far more than Elijah had feared on his worst days, they were also far less than you would expect given a population of one to two million. You see, in Elijah's day, just like Paul's, there were plenty of Israelites. That wasn't the problem. There were sons and daughters of Abraham everywhere you looked. But within that larger number, there was only a remnant of faithful believers to be found. If Elijah and Ahab were standing side by side, you would technically be looking at two Israelites. However, only one of them was a spiritual child of God, half. In the same way, you could say that the actual invisible body of believers in Elijah's day was a small percentage, a lesser percentage of the greater visible community. In fact, that concept of visible and invisible is what theologians often use to describe the church. On the one hand, the church is a visible body that includes everything you see in the Christian world, every person with every profession, every song on their heart, every denomination, every branch of doctrine. The visible church includes everyone in every pew this Sunday, every Christian in every Christianized setting there is. However, to return to our earlier question, do you think that all of those individuals are saved? Are they all legitimate believers? Are they all blood-bought sons and daughters of God, irrespective of their faith, their fidelity, or their fruits? Probably not. Within that larger visible body, there's probably a smaller invisible body, an invisible church, sheep scattered among goats. The question is, how many of them are there? Well, to repeat our thesis once more, there's probably a lot fewer than you might think. For the moment, that's a brief explanation of the visible and invisible church. Now, presuming that these categories are legitimate, presuming that the larger visible body is a conglomeration of sheep and goats alike, how can we tell the difference? How do we know the authentic or the invisible body of believers from among everyone else? Let's consider that question now.
Chapter 3. Making Distinctions You know, some distinctions in life are easy to make. If I was to watch a Raider Bronco football game, I can spot the Raider fans by the color of their clothing. And after the game, I can spot them by the river of tears they cry, assuming the Broncos prevail. Some distinctions are easy to make. A quick cursory look can tell you everything that you need to know. With that said, how do you tell an actual child of God from one who is just going through the motions? How do you discern a Jacob from an Esau, given that their profession and circumstances may seem very similar? How do you discern between denominations or cults for that matter? And should we even try? Is any of this our business? Should we attempt to discern who has an authentic profession and who is deceived? On one level, it can seem, I don't know, kind of pompous to point a finger at other fallen sinners just like us and then to label them as being outside the camp of God. It can seem unloving to do this, unloving to deny someone's profession. And there have been a lot of people who've done a lot of damage by ostracizing individuals, families, or denominations when they don't fit the exact same mold that they do or who differ from them on what we call secondary matters. On the other hand, in the exact same chapter where Jesus talked about the narrow way and about those who were deceived into the thinking that they knew God when he knew not them, Jesus also said this. He said, we will know these people, we will know them by their fruits. In other words, Jesus was saying that there's something about the spiritual fruit of one's life as a Christian that bears witness to the healthy root of their saving faith. Later in the New Testament, Paul and Peter, they talked about this regularly. They talked about the need to look at the fruit of professing believers, particularly those in a position to lead, to make sure that you didn't have wolves leading the sheep. Peter, Paul, Christ were all saying that the way we live, the way we act, the decisions that we make are supposed to give credibility to that which we profess. And they were also warning us that there will be many in Christian circles who don't. Now, are there any Bible verses that say our beliefs and our fruits or our actions should match up? Well, of course there are. There's lots of these. In John 14, Jesus said this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, if we love Jesus, if we love him who we've professed to love, then our actions will line up with our words. If we love him, we'll keep his commandments. Now, the opposite of this is true, too. 1 John 1 says this, If we say we have fellowship with him while we yet walk in darkness... We lie and we do not practice the truth. Now, who's that first talking about? Who are these liars, so to speak? Well, I'll give you a hint. They're not atheists. They're not people from other religions. Instead, John is referring to those individuals who say, who claim they have fellowship with Christ, who have a profession on their lips, but who don't love him. Those who say they've entered by the narrow door, but continue to walk in the broadest of ways. In Christ's day, there was a lot of people who did this. In Christ's day, there was a lot of people that gave off religious vibes. The Pharisees were as religious looking as it gets. To the untrained eye, they seemed like the most pious people in, in all of Israel, if not all the world. They claimed fellowship with God. They claimed sonship with the Father. They dressed the part. They prayed the prayers. However, if you inspected the totality of their walk, of their actions, it was clear that they were walking in darkness. Time and time again, they acted in wicked and ungodly ways. They were whitewashed tombs. Now, don't you think that some of their ilk exist today? Well, of course they do. Dear heavens, just look at televangelists. Look at the perpetrators of various church scandals. They do exist in our age, and they lead many astray. 
Now, are there other ways besides fruits, besides works, that we can discern the actual body of Christ from the larger visible group? Well, yes. How about looking at their theology? How about looking at their doctrines? Let me give you an example of this. Let's say there are two buildings on either side of the street. Both of them include the name Jesus Christ in their titles and, and billboards. Now, to the casual onlooker, they both look like they're practicing the same faith. They both appear Christian. There's pews and stained glass and the like. They have potluck meals. Surely they're the same thing, right? Well, what if, what if one of those churches believes that Jesus was not the second person in the Trinity, but rather was God's first created being? What if one of them adds additional books and revelations on top of the Bible and says that the Bible was insufficient and that latter-day prophets and writings are required to understand it? You see, if you redefine Christ and the Trinity and the Bible and virtually every other major doctrine, are you really practicing the same faith as the church across the street, let alone historic Christianity? In Galatians 1, the Apostle Paul answered that with a definitive no. Paul knew the importance of sound doctrine. Paul knew it, and because of what he knew, he told the Galatians that if we, or even if an angel from heaven, should come to you and preach any other gospel than what we have preached to you, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. You see, what categorizes a Christian, or a Republican, or a Democrat, or a, or a Rotary Club member for that matter, is a shared set of beliefs and presuppositions. And if you depart from those beliefs and presuppositions in, in key foundational matters, then the label itself no longer applies. At least that's the way it's supposed to work. But in our day, we've allowed Christianity, or what we call the church, to be defined by things that contradict the foundational teachings of Scripture. That which Paul called another gospel has in fact become the dominant gospel in many churches and denominations. There are many denominations and cults within visible Christianity that are no more Christian than your goldfish. Now, are they still part of the visible church? Yes, but they are not part of the actual invisible body of Christ. Now, if that last statement is true, then so is our thesis, that the church is not as big as it appears. God only knows the actual number, but the actual body of believers may just be a fraction of the visible whole. And if that's true, then the word remnant may be applicable to the modern sons and daughters of God, even if we don't recognize that it's the case. Chapter 4, The Remnant and the Modern Age you know, way back around 722 BC, the people of Israel were conquered by the Assyrians. The Assyrians took Israel into exile, but in Isaiah, God said that a remnant would one day return. In that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of the house of Jacob, will no longer rely on him who struck them down, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return. A remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. If you go back into the book of Genesis, you might recall when Abraham tried to intercede on behalf of Sodom to the point that God said he would spare the city if there was just 10 righteous men in it among the thousands that lived there. Of course, there, there wasn't even 10. If you think about Moses, he sent how many spies? How many spies did he send into Canaan, to the promised land? Well, scripture says he sent 12, but only two of them were faithful in the sense that they believed the promise of God. What about the 10, the 10 lepers that Jesus healed of which only one returned? What about Gideon's army of 32,000 that was shrunk down to 300 faithful, attentive soldiers? We could go on, but the point is that God's righteous, faithful children are routinely identified as a tiny fragment, a remnant of the visible whole. 
Now, there was a theologian, A.W. Tozer, who put it this way. He asked, what is the doctrine of the remnant? It is this, that in our blind, fallen, sinful world of mankind, at any given time, the vast, overwhelming majority is lost. And by lost, Tozer says, I do not mean that they've missed their way or come up short of the mark or are less than they wanted to be. By lost, I mean they're alienated from God and an enemy to him, without pardon, without life, without hope. What is the doctrine of the remnant? Remnant is a small fragment, a surviving trace. Was Tozer overstating things? Are his words applicable in our own age? Well, as we wrap up today, let's talk about the modern church for a moment. Statistically, there are over 2 billion folks who identify themselves as Christians. Now, on the one hand, that's great. That's an an amazing number. The idea that the church has grown from a handful of scared disciples in the upper room to billions, that's wonderful. If the world is over 7 billion people, it means that nearly one in three of them are professing believers. In fact, here in America, a recent survey, 2020 or so, said that two-thirds, or about 65% of American adults, identify themselves as Christians. Statistically, the majority of the people in our nation identify themselves as believers. Shouldn't that be great news? Well, here's the thing. It would be if their actions matched up with their beliefs. And if their beliefs matched up with Scripture. There's a Christian pollster named George Barna who said this in his studies of the modern North American church. He said there's a remarkable level of self-deception among born-again Christians. Large majorities of self-identified Christians report many beliefs that are not in harmony with biblical teaching. This includes 72% who argue that people are basically good, 66% say that having faith matters more than which faith you pursue, 64% say that all religious faiths are of equal value, and 58% believe that if a person is good enough, they can earn their way into heaven. Now, there are other statistics that we could cite, but dear heavens, did you just hear these? These are galling. They're an affront to everything we believe. Those that would believe, those that would say such a thing, they're not dabbling in heresy. This is actual apostasy. It's way worse than advancing just another gospel, which Paul said leads to anathema. And the reason it's way worse than that is because universalism or pluralism doesn't just advance one gospel in the singular, it legitimatizes all other gospels in the plural. It says that all roads lead to heaven. It denies Jesus with a kiss. And that's what the majority of modern professing believers profess. And if so, then we have ample cause to ask if modern pews and pulpits are occupied by sheep or by goats. Chapter 5. Conclusion. Given that we're running out of time, let me wrap things up. Dead, false, heretical religions can still have buildings. They can still have religious-looking people. They can still have worshippers and adherents thinking that everything's fine. If you want a case study in that, look at Ezekiel, look at Jeremiah. Such a religion can look healthy at 10,000 feet, but up close, its health, or its lack thereof, becomes clear. Israel had all the piety that you could shake a stick at, and yet when Jesus showed up and took one look at it, he wept. Things were way worse than they appeared, even if nobody in the temple or even among his own disciples recognized it. The majority of those in Christ's covenant age, covenant community, were lost. Only a remnant of that time remained. With that said, the good news that I'll leave you with now is this. Remnants grow. In Jeremiah 23, we read an Old Testament text that says this. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, against the shepherds who feed my people, you have scattered my flock, you have driven them away, you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings, but, but I will gather the remnant of my flock from out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their folds. Whatever your evaluation of the modern church, the good news is that God has always preserved a remnant, a remnant of faithful men and women, no matter how weird or wild the world around them has gotten. That hasn't changed and it won't change tomorrow. And guess what? Across the ages, that remnant has grown. In Revelation 7, the Apostle John had the opportunity to see all of God's people from all of the ages as they'll one day be gathered around the throne. And this is what he saw. He said, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, all tribes, all peoples, all tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out to the loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In other words, although the modern church may be smaller than it appears, the church triumphant is larger than we could ever imagine. And that's an encouraging thought. This is Radio 316.